palatability is important because uh, one, we want to be able to see our dog or our cat be enthused when they go to that bowl. It gives us a sense of, uh, uh, of being a good pet parent. We want to see our pets happy. Uh, there's instances in the case of, say, a puppy or, or even maybe a senior dog where they have specific nutrient uh, requirements. And the only place they're going to get those requirements are from their food. And so it's very important that they meet their daily caloric requirements and palatability can fit into that because obviously if the food isn't good, uh, the dog or the cat might not consume what they need to for the day. A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Chemin Nutrisurance is your pet food and rendering partner every step of the way. ProAmpac is changing the future of sustainable pet food packaging. Learn more at pets.proampac.com. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition. Make one call, find it all. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition, your partner for pet ingredients and services. Trow Nutrition, the science of ingredients, nutrition, and blending. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. Leading pet food manufacturers, renderers, and ingredient suppliers recognize that Kemen is assurance. Every day, they deliver specialized expertise, innovative products, and unrivaled support through the pet food and rendering value chain. From oxidation control and food safety to palatability and nutrition, all the way through a suite of tailored services that allow you to feel supported from start to finish to ensure you're getting the most from Kemen ingredients. That's why every step of the way, Kemen Nutrisurance is your partner in pet food and rendering ingredients. Welcome to our Pet Food Science Podcast. We have the, the pleasure, I have the pleasure of being with Dr. Sidney today, who is an expert on palatability and uh, pet food uh, science, which is a whole science of itself. And I want to learn more about that and we'll chat about um, how this is done and maybe why one might want to do it. Um, so, uh, Dr. Sidney, if you would, could you just tell us your background and tell us how you, uh, you got interested in this? Sure, and thank you for having me uh, today. Uh, my background is I grew up on a small farm in Kansas. I, I went to Kansas State and then Oklahoma State and ended up with a, uh, a degree in animal nutrition. Uh, swine nutrition specifically is what I worked on in graduate school. However, my second job out of school was as a formulator uh, for Nestle Purina in St. Louis. And so that's how I got my start in the pet food industry. And that was about 20 years ago. And I've had a few different positions over that time with a few different uh, companies and been with Kemen for about almost seven years now and working exclusively with palatants, uh, setting up palatability trials for customers, both dog and cat. And so I had somewhat of a knowledge of palatants before I got to Kemen being a formulator. But since I've been at Kemen, I have been, again, working exclusively with dog and cat palatants. Well, that's fascinating. In fact, uh, we may have overlapped a little bit, although I, I think I left Purina before you arrived. So 
so a uh, lot of lot of nutritionists track through that uh, that space. I wonder if you could tell us about palatins. You know what what interests you, and and what value do you think palatins have to the pet? Well, to the pet, it's important. Uh, palatability is important because uh, one, we want to be able to see our dog or our cat be enthused when they go to that bowl. Yeah. It gives us a sense of. Uh, uh, of being a good pet parent. We want to see our pets happy. Uh, there's instances in the case of, say, a puppy or, or even maybe a senior dog where they have specific nutrient uh, requirements, and the only place they're going to get those requirements are from their food. And so it's very important that they meet their daily caloric requirements and palatability can fit into that because obviously if the food isn't good, uh, the dog or the cat might not consume what they need to for the day. Uh, in addition to, as I alluded to earlier, you just want to have that pet parent get the feeling of satisfaction that they're providing for their pet. Um, and, and I think we've all had that experience where you put the food down, the, the, the dog or the cat rushes to the bowl and it gives us that that feeling of we're, we're, we're making our pet happy, which makes us happy and we're, yeah. we're taking care of them. Yeah. In fact, you know, as a nutritionist, we would often say that, you know, the nutrients aren't any valuable unless they're consumed. And of course, in, in many cases, um, we're working through, uh, you know, actually enhancing pets to eat because they may not be be consuming, they're, they're ill or they're coming from a recovery. So, so that has great value, too. I wonder if you could talk to us about, you know, maybe some of the ways you, you measure this. I mean, we, we have the happiness factor, but, but it's sort of hard to improve a palatant just because the dog's really happy. How, how do you know which ones they really like? Well, there's a couple of different tests that we do that are pretty well recognized in the pet food industry. Uh, the most common is what we refer to as a two-bowl or a versus okay. test. And this is just what the the name would imply. A, a dog or a cat is, is given a choice, uh, ration A and a ration B. And then there is a, a technician at one of these professional kennels that will observe uh, the animal and record which bowl or which ration they approach first, which one they eat first. And then at the end of the meal, we'll weigh back each bowl of food to determine which one they consumed more of. And that's how we determine how if one food is equal, better or worse compared to another food. And so a lot of producers, pet food manufacturers will do this when they uh, want to make sure they're on par with their competition. I see. So you could you could say, you know, maybe a, a claim might be, well, my pet food tastes better than your pet food. But but from a developing standpoint, like you, you mentioned a couple things that I think are interesting. You said first approach, which really has nothing to do with the taste of the food. Right. And then the sort of total consumed, which is which is probably the best indicator of well, I don't know about best, but it's a it's a it's a it's an indicator you can put a statistics to about is this food statistically better? Can, can you kind of talk about that first approach versus maybe uh, food consumed? Sure. So typically, if a food is better than another food because of whatever reason, the palatant or it's just better, that first approach will generally be in the same trend throughout that dog or that cat panel as the intake ratio or the consumption ratio. When you see a difference between first approach and consumption, 
that could indicate that the, uh, there's an aroma difference. And we mo- more often see that with dogs, as you can imagine, dogs are led through the world with their nose. You yeah. can to some degree with cats, but if we see a wildly different result in first approach versus let's say intake or consumption, then we can pretty much infer that there's an aroma interaction going on there because they, it smells good, but it didn't maybe taste good. And that would be the discrepancy. But if it smells good, tastes good, those two parameters generally follow each other. Yeah. Well, that's great. And it's interesting. You mentioned dogs. They, they really smell a lot, don't they? Maybe a lot more than we do. Can you talk about that as far as it relates to attraction to food? They do. And when we're developing palatants, you'll hear the term Maillard reaction a lot. And that is how these aromatic uh, compounds and aromas are generated is through that uh, Maillard reaction of that free amino acid and that reducing sugar. So that's a very big part of how we develop palatants uh, for both dog and cats is, is manipulating those uh, reactions to get those meaty type of aromas uh, so forth, you know, for each dog and cat. That's interesting. You know, I've wondered, worked with sometimes in the past different methods for trying to, uh, to establish a, a preference, but, but let's dive a little further into this two pan test because mm-hmm. that's really the industry standard, isn't it? That that's, it that's is. people recognize and it's sort of intuitive that, you know, if a pet eats more of one food than another, it's, it likes it better. You know, we, we can't ask the pet, but can you talk a little bit about the statistics? And that might be just for the nerds among us, but, but, you know, it's actually a fairly robust analysis. And, and I'd like to try and communicate that. Um, it's sure. not just a, not just a feeling or something. You, you actually can know which one was preferred. Could, I wonder if you could talk to us about sure. that. So a typical two bull test will consist of uh, 20 animals fed over two days. So that gives you 40 observations. And that's kind of the minimum you need to be able to make a statistical analysis and determine statistically, uh, you know, with a good 95% confidence uh, interval uh, or um, that one food is better than the other. Now, again, there are, you can strengthen that by feeding more than two days or more than 20 animals, but 20 animals, two days is kind of the industry standard as far as starting out with evaluating palatability. There's also repeating that. So you have uh, more repetitions within or of that specific test. Yeah. Um, but there is another test that's it's also fairly common where we just feed one diet. Okay. And while you can't compare statistically one diet to another, it's a little bit better in mimicking what the consumer is going to see in their house. And we yeah. call that an acceptance test or a monadic test. And that's just more of an indication of will the dog or the cat actually accept the food? Will he refuse it? Will they consume enough to meet their caloric requirements? So that's that second type of test. Uh, I know I deviated from the statistical answer, but that's the other kind of test that we typically see run at these same kennels that we use. Well, it's sort of fascinating for me because, you know, my history in pet food science is long. And when we first came in, we cared about that monadic test most because we sort of said, hey, you know, pets are going to eat what they're pet parent gives them. And if they eat it well enough to maintain body weight, 
we're happy, you know, mm-hmm. give them the best nutrition possible. And then we sort of moved on from that to realize, well, maybe there's more, there's more to uh, what taste is than just they eat enough to survive, you know, which is kind of the yeah. You do see, you see that monadic or that one bowl test a lot when, when producers are changing formulas and they just want to kind of mitigate the risk and make sure they're not making a, a big mistake. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So if you're going to change a color or a shape or a slight protein in your formula, it's more of a check before you go to market. That's mostly what those monadic tests are used for. You know, one of the things uh, I just want to dive a little back to that two pan test, because mm-hmm. it's actually, uh, again, it's so well accepted that if I wanted to to go out and say my food is, you know, better than my old food, I could I could defend that with the two pan test, you know, a court of law or, or you know, in the consumer's hand, we would mm-hmm. absolutely expect it to taste better than the old one used to. Is that right? It is right, but you have to keep in mind that these foods are constantly changing. People are switching up palatants. People are, uh, producers are changing the amount of palatants. So it's important to monitor that over time. I can run a series of tests of product A versus product B and statistically say with confidence product A is better, but that might not be true six months from now or a year from now. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So, um I've certainly had foods in the marketplace where we improve the pal as the food went on. But, you know, it's just part of what people do, and it's a good thing, and pets enjoy it very much. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about the difference between dogs and cats and what they like. I, I You know, we always used to smile at each other and sort of say, you know, cats are not small dogs. And right. I sort of assume that's true in palatins, but I don't, I don't really know that. What, what, what's the difference there? Sure. Well, cats are definitely more finicky. It's a lot. I wouldn't say a lot, but it is more difficult to pick up a statistical difference between rations or foods in cats compared to dogs. Uh, Anybody who owns a dog and a cat knows cats are very picky. They tend to go to the bowl several times a day, eat a kibble or two, walk away, come back versus a dog who generally goes to the bowl and consumes everything fairly quickly. And again, dogs are more aroma driven, but there's a couple of other things that are kind of unique between dogs and cats and how they perceive flavors. Um, One would be sugars and salts. Uh, Dogs are a lot like humans. We like sugar. We like things that are sweet. We like things that are salty. Cats, on the other hand, don't have those type of receptors, they don't pick up, they don't react the same way to sugar and salt the way sure. a dog will. So that's one you know difference that, that can go into uh, developing a palatant. Uh, the other one is the use of, of phosphates. Uh, there's a few different phosphates out there, but it's pretty well known that phosphates are a very high driver of palatability for cats. And you will see phosphates and just about every type of cat palatin out there. Yeah, some of them are, I know there's patents on, you know, sodium acid pyrophosphate and others, and maybe mm-hmm. the patents are expired by now, but they're very tasty pats. When I taste them, I get a sort of diet Mountain Dew taste. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of, it's not a negative taste, but it's, it's, it's not so positive, but cats really like it. Apparently. Cats really like it. I've heard the theory that, you know, there is, it's a, uh, it, it triggers their brain to think they're eating meat because there's a lot of phosphates in blood and 
uh, in meat. So it gives them that sensation. Of course, we can't ask the cat, but we know just from testing over and over again that that is a very powerful driver of palatability for cats. Now, when you're developing a palatant and, and you sort of think about the whole package, do you kind of just, what do you provide? Say I was going to build a pet food and I wanted to buy your palatant for dogs and cats. And what would you provide a manufacturer to say, okay, this is what you ought to know from the nutritional side uh, mm-hmm. for that palatability. Because in the end, we want to complete, you know, we're going to feed a complete food, not not the icing on the cake, if you will, or right. whatever that palatant well, might be. Generally, foods are formulated to be complete complete and balanced regardless of the palatin. And that gives you flexibility to switch palatins, to not be so worried about the protein or the fat content of the palatin. However, yes, uh, there is a certain amount of protein, fat, ash, all of those things that come in through the palatin. Um, It just depends on the starting materials, of course, and what you use to mix with it. In the case of a dry palatin, you can use, let's say, a yeast carrier, which is a very high protein type of a carrier, as opposed to, let's say, a cornstarch, which would be very low protein. So there is always going to be a a nutrient factor to consider, uh, but usually it's just taste, um, revolves around the taste and the overall sure. impact to the diet when we're talking about palatins. So, so in some ways you're providing to the manufacturer and again to the pet a nutrient package, but what you're really delivering is a taste component. And right. so you could make a, a very, you know, I always sort of smile. I think, you know, I, I'm not the best baker in the world, but I know you can put all the ingredients together and make a, a great tasting cake or a bad tasting cake. And so it's more than just ingredients, but, but in the end, this is, this is the driver, a lot of driver for a taste. Is, it is. is and you have to keep in mind that these palatins are going over a wide variety of food matrices. Well, oh, that's interesting. Well, would, would you, well, I was going to ask you, cause it just, blew up in my mind then would you have a different palatin say say i have a food that's designed for weight maintenance so it's kind of high fiber low fat uh, versus a, a food for a very active pet which might be very fairly mm-hmm. moderate fiber and, and and enhanced fat would would that be a different palatin then that's one of the tricky things is when you test palatins let's say we're testing our a liquid dog palatin on a chicken and rice diet. Well, things are great. Uh, we're getting the response we want. And then we test it on a, a beef and rice or a salmon and rice. All of a sudden the things are, you know, the response is different. Yeah. Well, is there an interaction going on there between the palatant, maybe the proteins in the palatant versus the proteins in the kibble? You know, you can have a chicken based palatin going on a beef kibble. You could have a, a pork-based palatin going on a chicken kibble. There seems to be some indication that kind of mixing flavors like that tends to have more of a positive impact compared to just having a chicken-based palatin on a chicken-based kibble. Uh, But again, there's so many things that can affect palatability besides the palatin itself. It's very important to keep in mind that a correct processing, good ingredients, those things always affect palatability as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Processing parameters are very key. We know, for example, moisture is a, as dogs prefer, a, they tend to like a higher moisture kibble uh, compared to a really dry kibble, for example. What about cats? Cats are so finicky. Are they like dogs in that way or different? 
Cats tend to like a dry texture. Uh, you'll yeah. see in the industry, most cat produce, uh, cat food uh, makers will use a dry palatant. Uh, most yeah. dog food kibble makers will use a liquid palatant. And that some of that is, is revolves around plant capabilities, but a lot of it revolves around the fact that it's known that cats like a dry, crunchy type texture. So that's why you would use a dry powder type palatant. Hmm. Well, when you're working through this, have you ever thought about like, yeah, I'm thinking aloud, if you allow it, on these different kinds of foods that have different kinds of palatants. And, and we want our pets to eat and enjoy their pet food. But say, for example, I'm working on, on a weight reduction pet food. It might taste really good, but the food itself might be less consumed because, you know, it has high fiber or it has some factors in it. I mean, have you ever thought about maybe working on a, a system where maybe the pet had to, like I, I remember reading, I've never done it, but sort of like had a dog press a bar to uh, to to get food back and kind of have a work for uh, a component rather than a choice because it might work for a food uh, that that would be a little different than I choose to eat it. Do you know what I mean? Have you ever thought about that kind of uh, measurement of desire to eat rather than than sort of actual consumption? I mean, there is some tests out there, some some treat tests that are similar to what you just described, where you yeah. put a treat inside of a uh, of an apparatus, and then the dog or has to work to get to it, and then that yeah. kind of a response can be measured. Um, but as far as just your your weight management example on on regular old kibble, um, I mean that would be interesting. But I think most people just compensate for that by upping the dosage yeah. rate of their, yeah. of their whatever it is. Yeah. Not a bad idea, right? Do you want them to enjoy right. the food even though they're only getting, you know, maybe right. food because not, more like vegetables and less, less like prime steak and, and yeah. potato. And not that, I mean, not a, I would say a hugely significant calorie component is coming to the diet from the palate because we're talking about one or 2%. So yeah. you can up that application rate in the case because a lot of times palatants are used to mask unfavorable flavors. Uh, we see that a lot with nutraceutical type treats. You know, you got to get the dog or the cat to eat this thing and it's not very flavorful. So they'll use a, uh, you know, a high amount of palatant either on the outside or the inside of this treat. Mm -hmm. No, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the ingredient stream that you all use. You mentioned yeast, and I understand that yeast can have sometimes some palatability all of its own, right? They can put a cheese flavor in or some of those things. Is that yeah. something to watch? Yeast is very common in, in, in the palatability world. One is very plentiful. There's both distillers and brewers. You can use that either a small amount, let's say, in the cook process to generate some flavors, but more often it's used as a carrier. So it's mixed with those very concentrated bases that would, say, come out of the spray dryer. You have to mix that with something so that it flows, so that it's able to be coated on kibble or treats. And that's where we see a lot of yeast being used. Um, we see a lot of distiller's yeast. It's plentiful. A lot of cat palatants will use brewer's yeast. Um, mm. It's kind of, I guess, in the literature, at least uh, for a long time, it was thought that brewer's yeast 
is better, palatable, more palatable than distiller's yeast. But we found it's more of a supplier thing. You can still have great performing distiller's yeast. Uh, you can have bad performing distiller's yeast. You know, we've I've got a, a slide that I present when I go to customers of a, an 80-20 loss to a 90-10 win just by changing out the yeast vendor yeah. or supply. So there's all kinds of things to consider especially when it comes to an ingredient like yeast. You know, I love that thought. I think that's something that many people sort of know intuitively but don't think about with pet food is that ingredients that have the exact same name can have tremendously different uh, quality and, and like you said, a, a taste component, which is in your in your space an absolute measure of quality. And yet, yeah. Everyone would recognize it's appropriately sold with the same name. So Right. If you think about how yeast is generated, it's got its own process, just like yeah. a palatin. You could have different time and temperature parameters within that yeast processing thing that can you can get burnt yeast, you can get yeast that wasn't maybe fermented. All, there's all kinds of different scenarios you can sure. come up with just to illustrate sure. that there is differences. Sure. Uh, it's fascinating. Well, what do you think about when you're, when you're, you know, out with a customer and you're, you're, you know, you're saying here, you ought to think about this palatin. We've talked a little bit about quality. We've talked about, you know, taste preference, which is the reason they're buying it. Um, do, do you think of any other things? What, you know, what, what, what's your space? You know, what, what's yeah. the house you live in there? It really, it's, it's fascinating because usually when you're talking to a customer about the wide variety of palatins we, we offer, it comes down to labeling requirements. Uh, okay. There's so many different claims out there, whether it's natural, just the word natural itself can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So we have natural flavor versus, well, AFCO natural, where Every little component, even the processing aids, have to be, quote, unquote, natural. Mm -hmm. um, you have things like grain-free, uh, identity preserved. Uh, a few years ago, no ingredients from China was a big thing. We don't see that so much anymore. But there, it usually comes down to when trying to whittle down uh, the options for, for a pet food producer from a you know, a choice of 30 some palatins down to one or two comes down to how are you going to label it? What are your claims? Um, is grain free? Okay. Is pork? Okay. Is fish? Okay. As an ingredient, things like that. So they're trying to complement what their message is to the consumer who I assume is mostly watching this episode. They're trying to complement that claim, that, that position with the, with mm -hmm. the, Alton, I you said something that's sort of interesting to me, I think might be interesting to those listening, is this idea of natural. We've we sort of progressed with natural uh, through, you know, at one time it was kind of anything was natural that you proclaim natural. And now, like you said, there's really, really a, a very defined AFCO is this Association of American Feed Control Officials that, that sort of act as a regulatory group. Uh, they, they, you know, that's more complicated than it sounds, but, but it is that. Um, so, so when you're looking at natural, um, and you want to maybe meet that stringent AFCO definition, tell, tell us how that works through to the, to the actual final product for the, for, for, for the pet food manufacturer. Yeah. So when you hear, when you see the term natural flavor on a label, 
That is just the component and the way I understand it. Uh, I'm not in regulatory, but that's just the, 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 the ingredients that undergo the hydrolysis uh, and that cook process. That's, that's the flavor component. And you usually are talking about uh, things like liver, viscera, what have you. And that's that natural flavor component. But then you can have things like mold inhibitors added after the fact that aren't so natural, yet it can still be labeled as natural flavor. So it can get very confusing. But when we talk about strict, all natural, or again, AFCO natural, where everything has to be natural, that's where the challenges come uh, into making these palatins. Because I mentioned a mold inhibitor. All of a, for a liquid palatin, for example, those are always reduced down to a pH of around three. And that's going to inhibit a certain amount of mold and certainly microbial growth. However, sometimes these palatins are going to sit for a while, a couple of three months, for example, and you have to be able to ensure that absolutely nothing's going to grow in that. And a good example in the AFCO natural uh, example I'm trying to lay out is potassium sorbate. It's in in a lot of foods. Humans consume it. It's in a very small amount typically considered a processing aid. So in the traditional regulatory world of of both human food and uh, animal food, you don't necessarily have to, you can use that and still be natural. Afco natural, you can't. So we have to use different technologies for mold inhibition, let's say. Mm -hmm. Um, We use a a vinegar and a citric acid type of a technology, for example, at at Kemen to, to get around that not to get around that, but to be able to preserve something, uh, a mold inhibitor that's natural. Yeah, you, I, I spoke to you, but I'm, I, it's interesting to me. You want to you preserve the, the uh, ingredient that you're providing. You want it to be healthy when used. And, and of course, that, that, like any ingredient, has a shelf life desired. I just wonder if you can help me understand, because I'm just ignorant of this, why is sorbate not natural, but citrate is natural? Is it the process? Or? <laughs> Good question. It is very confusing uh, to me as well. I know there are there probably are oftentimes, you know, another example would be phosphoric acid. That's the common acidifier and stabilizer. Yeah. There are natural sources of, of phosphoric acid and probably a natural, meaning from the earth, source of sorbic acid. But those are often way too cost prohibitive to I actually see. use on I a see. big scale. So you have to come up with alternatives. The way yeah. I understand it, citric uh, can be either way, depending on how it's uh, made, where it yeah. comes from. If it's fermented or if it's if it's comes from yeah. you know, oranges, so no, no, that makes I actually understand that right. So it's not the compound necessarily, but the process right. that made it. And of course, as a nutritionist, um, you know, I want healthy pets, right? You want the very best for pets, and 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 yet a foundational nutritional. Uh, principle is that an amino acid is an amino acid is an amino acid. So if it's from a plant or from a test tube or from a from an animal, it's an amino acid. That's that's what the what the pet mm-hmm. cares about. But but you know many consumers and 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 it's important uh, to meet that need. And I'm not I'm not denigrating the person who wants all natural. Uh, you know we want to provide that. That's that's fine. I 
I um, I'm still, you know, basically most interested in what benefits the pet. And of course, mm-hmm. Pal is, is a part of that. And, and I, you know, when my pets eat it, I like to watch them enjoy it too. Um, hopefully at, uh, at, at no expense to the, yeah. to the quality of the food. So that's always a question, I guess. And one of the hurdles we're facing now in that natural uh, category or, or, or front is going back to the use of phosphates for cat palatin. A lot of those are not, quote unquote, natural. Uh, they're chemically synthesized. So we're, yeah. we're, we're trying to figure out different options there because it's just hard to, in a two-bowl test, compare or compete a phosphate versus a non-phosphate cat palatin. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. So that that's yeah, it's a, it's sort of like uh, so much part of nutrition. It's providing that benefit to the pet and, and also meeting the desired uh, pet parents, uh, you know, attributes of the food and and both legitimate and good. We we're in the process of trying to meet meet that. So it's mm-hmm. fascinating. What do you think? What if you look out over the future? I mean, is there is there something on the horizon that interests you? You talked a little bit about about meeting the new ingredient desires. Are, are, are there others? What do, what do you think? Uh, there's been a lot of emphasis on plant-based palatins okay. and trying to make those, uh, design those so that they, they smell like meat to a dog and a cat. And it's not just because there's a lot of vegan or vegetarian diets out there, but when you make a plant-based palatin, it becomes very compatible across a wide range of diets. And it also makes it very easy for customers who do a lot of exporting uh, because you don't, you get into a lot of export restrictions when you deal with certain animal proteins. When it's a plant-based product, you don't have to deal with a lot of that permit and paperwork. And it can be also applied very uh, across a wide range of formulas, for example, limited ingredient diets. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where there's just one protein and often one carbohydrate source. So if you have a full line of, of LID formulas, a beef, a chicken, a salmon, and a duck, you can use one palatin for all of those rather than just have to carry four different palatins. And that matters to that food just to know, though, the LID is a limited ingredient. What is LID? Limited ingredient diet. So you'll ah, see those right. advertised where they only have a handful of ingredients in the whole yeah. bag. And, and it's usually just one protein. So, for example, chicken and sweet potato. Would, right. and sweet potato would be the carbohydrate. And then it's just yeah. vitamins and minerals and natural flavor and maybe a few other things. Yeah. Yeah. So... So you would would you then need to have a sweet potato base palatant? Well, no, you just would need a, a plant based because what plant-based. you can't okay. do in that case is have a pork based palatant go right. on a chicken and sweet potato because now you got two animal proteins in there. Yeah. So you're trying to limit, yeah, one animal protein. One and, and to a pet food producer, you don't have to carry so many palatants. They're always limited on space, bin space, and it's just very nice if you can get a good palatant to go over several different formulas rather than have a specific palatant for every specific formula. Well, that's interesting. Do you have trouble if you're bringing those plant-based? I, I tend to think these, you know, I think of a cat as an obligate carnivore and a dog as an omnivore. They they both like meat uh, as far as I can tell. Yeah. So that is that a pretty big hurdle to bring in a plant-based uh, palatant? Yeah. 
It is definitely more of a hurdle for cats. As you said, they are carnivores and it can, you can do it. It's just hard. Again, going back to the different types of tests, it's easy to get a cat to accept, fairly easy to get a cat to accept a plant-based palatant with phosphates. Uh, but it's not so easy to beat a super premium meat-based palatin on that same kind of kibble. So again, it goes back to what your expectations are. Are you trying to be better than your competitor or do you just want to have the cat accept the food? Yeah. So that's what the decision often comes down to. Well, you work for an international company and, and you, you talked a lot about that, uh, uh, opportunities to to make something in one, you know, regulatory space and export it to another. Do you think about that a lot with your ingredients? That you know, depending on where they're going to be purchased, this this export trade is really important. Yeah, as far as our palatins, we'll make palatins here in the North America. We also have a facility in Italy and one in South America. So there are different regulations within those different regions. But as far as what we make in North America and who we're selling to, that product, those kibbles and treats can go all over the world. And that's where a lot of the regulatory and the uh, the restrictions come in is in that part of the thing. Um, business. Wow. That's fascinating. How, how long have you been, you know, in this area of, of, you know, trying to design the best tasting palatins? How, how many years have you spent here? I've been with Kemen for six and a half years, and that's when I've been dealing just specifically with palatins and specialty uh, spray dry proteins. We do a lot of uh, different hydrolyzed proteins that are used in a lot of uh, prescription diets and the hydrolysis process is also used not just for our proteins, but also for all of our palatins. Whatever starting material we're using, whether it's pea protein for a plant-based palatin or chicken liver, pork liver, all goes through a hydrolysis process. Uh, and so that's what I've been – go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, people might not understand that. And I think sure. it's a, a sort of interesting factor you've spoken of. So hydrolysis is you're using enzymes to break up the protein – does, okay. does that just always make it more tasty or do you make it in a way that makes it a better tasting product? Well, what it does is it helps when you break that protein down into amino acids and peptides, it makes them able to react better with going back to that Maillard reaction. Well, that so it's sort of freeze them up for those taste reactions. For those yeah. reactions to take place where we're going to add um, – Things like sulfur-containing amino acids, for example, uh, certain types of B vitamins, not for nutrition, but as cofactors in a lot of these aroma reactions. Uh, just breaking that protein down enables it to interact and facilitate a lot more reactions in a lot more faster pace than if you were to just throw in something that was non-hydrolyzed. So when you look at your endpoints, it is the one... So you're delivering a nutrient package, but that's sort of defined by doing analysis. Is is your single most important, maybe the only important output is how does it taste? Is that is that? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, when it comes to palatins, 99% of the time, it's just how does it taste? How is it yeah. going to perform? And of course, I, I don't mean 
the, the foundation that's built on, I should point out, is it's not going to be microbial contaminated. It's not going to, you know, there, there's a safety issue that I just accepted as, as flat. I mean, everybody's yeah. required that. But, but building off of that, then, is this, how does it taste? Yeah, the, the food safety is very important because, as you know, these palatins are applied after the kill step, usually the last thing that goes on the food. So we have a very, yeah, us, anybody making palatins is going to have a very strict food safety hold and release program uh, for their palatins. Tell us about hold and release. What does that mean? That, that's that's an unusual. It's uh, what, what a what a. Pet food, same thing that a pet food manufacturer will do with their finished food. You basically hold it until you can test it for microbial contamination. Once it's declared okay, then it's able to leave your facility and go out into the marketplace. Yeah, actually, that's something that interests, I think, in general, people don't necessarily know about quality pet food manufacturers, that you have the process that assures you you're making a quality product, but then that's tested at the end too, so that you actually know what happened. Um, it's sort of both required. You can't necessarily test in quality, but just assuring quality through process is also not sufficient. So it, it's, right. it's, it's interesting that you, as an ingredient supplier, sort of talk of the, you know, the same, same space. Oh, yeah. As you know, salmonella contamination is first and foremost in the pet food industry. And so every pet food manufacturer pretty much requires a a salmonella free certificate on any ingredient that's coming into their plant that's going to be applied after that kill step. Yeah, everybody worries about it. It is Mm -hmm. a problem in human food, too. Uh, So it's it's food manufacturer. You know, one thing that we talked a little bit before we got on the air, and I think there's an important part of this that just touch on. Um, of course, this is a this is a process where a lot of value is added, but the actual starting ingredients in liver and viscera that you might be using these are often not really used in human consumption. They're they're sort right. of a secondary product of that uh, that stream, and and so in some ways you're delivering. Uh, a much a high quality starting not with a low quality ingredient, but but in some ways a, a secondary ingredient in a primary ingredient stream. And that's how those materials came to be so commonly used is because historically they weren't going into human food, yet they're very nutritious, very yeah. flavorful, especially to a dog and a cat. And again, lend themselves very well to the hydrolysis process. Yeah, interesting. Sort of not not exactly lemonade out of lemons, but kind of that idea. And as we know, liver is very nutritious, so you have that component too. Yeah. Yes, I understand. You know, one thing I always ask people, and you've been in a couple of different uh, spaces and you've walked through this, what what do you find? You look at someone who maybe you'd like to recruit for your team or, or look for someone who you think would be a success in your area. What what? What attributes would an individual, maybe they're a, a, a you know a student that's listening to this episode, uh, what what would they what would they say? You know, if I could develop this, I would I would have a, a benefit for my my job. If if for example you were that hiring manager or person, I mean, I would just any other as with any scientific position, you want to look for somebody that has that curiosity that has you know, knowledge of, of the scientific method and how how to test things and. And just 
because a lot of times in palatants, you don't know. You just kind of trying things to see what work you, 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 you might have an idea that this would mix well, this ingredient with the other, but I would say just look for somebody with that drive and that curiosity to, to, and not be afraid to fail. Oh, those are, those are often mentioned. I, I, I want to dive a little deeper on the afraid to fail. We, we don't like to fail, right? And yet right. sometimes that recognizing failure when it slaps us and, and not, not taking too much of a hit is, is part of success. You got to know what doesn't work is just as important as knowing what does work. It's, we've heard that saying before, and I, I, it sticks with me. Just because something didn't work doesn't mean it was a failure. I mean, now we know what not to try next time. Yeah, fascinating. building block. Well, that, that's that's kind of the, I, I sort of covered the things I, I I wanted to talk to you about. I wonder if as we as we look at sort of next steps, if you could if you could say, I would wish for this in the industry in the pet food science space. What, is there a collaboration or a, an interaction or what? What would really make you know success for the whole industry uh, from your perspective enhanced? Ah, uh, I would say if we could all get together and figure out an alternative to these phosphates for cats, uh, that would be something that seems to be a, a code nobody's been able to crack yet, at least to a, a very significant degree. Uh, I mean, yeah, that, would, that could be one example, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for our time. I, I've yeah. sure enjoyed learning more about this area of of it's, it's exciting how to how to you know made it make a better tasting cake if you will or from sure. a pet food uh, kibble side how to make that kibble uh, taste better to the pet um, the balance that you've described as far as taking ingredients that perhaps are not very valuable for the human food chain and making them a, a, a very valuable component for the pet food space that's that's fun I, I appreciate mm-hmm No problem. It was a pleasure being here. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time-consuming and requires technical know-how. But don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.